You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Christopher Media, let's make some noise. Hey folks, Mike White here bringing you a special episode of the Projection Booth. We are about to hear from Greg Travis. He's a character actor that you might recognize from things like Showgirls and Starship Troopers. Want to know what he did in Starship Troopers? Here it is right here. We now break net and take you live to Fleet Battle Station Ticonderoga, deep inside the arachnid quarantine zone, where the men and women of the Federal Armed Services prepare to attack. DXQ uplink on two, one, you're on. No one here in the AQZ knows exactly when the invasion of Klandathu will occur, but everyone's talking about it, and the talk says tomorrow. Here's a bunch of MI kids that look like they could eat bugs for lunch. <laughs> yum, yum, yum. So, Trooper, you're not too worried about fighting the arachnids? Hey, shoot a nuke down a bug hole, you got a lot of dead bugs, I just right? hope it's not over before we get some. <laughs> <laughs> some say the bugs were provoked by the intrusion of humans into their natural habitat, that a live-and-let-live policy is preferable to war with the bugs. Let me tell you something. I'm from Buenos Aires, and I say kill them all! Yeah! Mr. Travis has just recently completed a movie 30 years in the making called Dark Seduction. We're going to be talking to him about that and about a whole lot of other things. So hold on to your seats and enjoy this special episode of The Projection Booth. Come back on Wednesday for our regular show. Enjoy. The creeps were crawling out of the woodwork like a bad dream. Well, come on in, girls. New wave, huh? What the hell happened? So you're kind of case, Jones. Murdoch thought I was washed up. Last chance. There's nothing like a murder to get you back on your feet. I needed a case. Needed it real bad. I'm not a cop. I'm not a hooker. But uh, what were you doing hitchhiking on Sunset? <laughs> thought I'd visit a piss poor pool hustler named Fast Eddie. It's about that money, owe you man. I ain't got it. So relax. No a good tooth, man. The rat. Ex-con. Ex-dentist. You're the rat. I think this tooth belongs to a vampire. You know any bloodsuckers in this town? <laughs> There'd be a lot of bloodsuckers in this town. Any for real? Where do you go when you're looking for a vampire? I figured Hollywood Boulevard was a good place to start. What do you want to know? I'm looking for a vampire with one tooth. Know any? Come on in. I know what you want. We're vampires and we came to feed. I don't know. This case I've got is driving me crazy. i got a couple dead in Hollywood. I've got this two-some rat claims belongs to a vampire. And you know what the kicker is? This bite on my neck? I don't even know where it came from. I think it's a bite of a vampire. There's no such thing as vampires. You know that. I'm making a vampire movie. A lot of blood, a lot of sex, a lot of violence. I think you girls would be perfect for this. What do we have to do? You're going to take all your clothes off. 
You got to get naked. How did you decide to get into show business? Well, I sort of was always interested in it. I, you know, in fifth grade, I got up and did a um, a little pantomime and one of the talent shows, and and then I got into magic and started doing little birthday party shows when I was in junior high and high school, and so um, that sort of led me to theater in high school, and then uh, actually got into filmmaking in high school as well. So. Just one thing led to another, and I was always just fascinated with uh, performing and, uh, and and movies. I guess going to the movies when I was a kid was probably the main thing. I just went to a lot of movies because we were or my parents' store was close to the theater, so they would drop me off. I'd spend the day, you know, watching movies. <laughs> that kind of got me interested, and uh, and then I saw Yul Brenner and The King and I, when I was about six years old, and I remember being very impressed by that, thinking that would just be a, an amazing thing to do, would be in front of all those people performing. So, you know, it was a lot of things, but uh, just, you know, always sort of interested in doing that. Now, where was this? Where did you grow up? I grew up in Dallas, yeah, Dallas, Texas, yeah. So how long before you decided to make the move to Hollywood? I had made uh, a couple of films in high school and I started looking around for film schools to go to. And I found this one called Sherwood Oaks Experimental Film School in Hollywood, which was taught by professionals who were in the business. And so you had like Robert Easton teaching dialects classes and uh, voice classes and Clue Guliger was the acting teacher in it. And I took Stanley Myron Handelman's comedy class and, uh, you know, so you had all these real people in the industry teaching the classes. So I came out to do that and I believe 78 or it might've been the end of 77 came out to do that and then started doing stand up comedy at the comedy store in the improv on audition night. And then about, uh, four or five months later, I started getting, uh, spots at these clubs and then developed my stand up comedy. And then after about a year and a half of film school, I kind of got sucked into the comedy world and started doing that full time. And then that led to about a 20 year career doing that, traveling all over the world. And what was your what was your act like? Lots of characters, lots of voices. I'm a pretty good impressionist and, uh, you know, character actor. So lots of fun characters and everything weaved in and out of monologues. And then I, I closed with this character called the Punk Magician, which was sort of my famous bit that I did on Rodney Dangerfield's HBO special. You know, fuck you, it's magic. I'm fooling you and you don't like it. You know, and I play this magician who sort of assaults the audience with his magic tricks and sprays cards. And and I get a girl up and take her bra off and, you know, it just, you know, it's, it's just kind of like a punk rock, you know, sex pistols type punk rocker doing magic. And, uh, and so early on I came up with that idea and I just kind of like let it kind of simmer for a while. I didn't really have it in the act and then I brought it back and it just became a huge hit. So that was my big closing bit that really, uh, you know, really blew out the room. So yeah, it was a lot of fun. I had a, had a great time doing it and, uh, actually caught the wave from, you know, 79 on to the mid to late nineties, which was sort of the big boom, you know, and, uh, worked all the clubs around the country and just about every city in the, in the country, you know? So that was, it was quite a lot of fun and 
But after a while, I just, you know, wasn't ever around to get the acting roles that I was, you know, going for. And so I just had to get off the road for, you know, a while to see if I could pursue an acting career. And I did that. And uh, luckily, I uh, made some headway. And I was still, uh, you know, young enough to um, start getting some parts. And then I got Showgirls. And that sort of led to uh, a pretty good little acting career that I, um, you know, was able to do about 45 films in the last 15, 16 years. I mean, I had done maybe a few, but like I'm ha- maybe six or seven before that, but not too many, just little parts. But, uh, you know, and they're not all big parts, some some little parts, but uh, all, you know, within, I would say, yeah, about 15 years. And uh, I'm still working as an actor, but not as much, you know, when you... Um, there's not as much going on in Los Angeles as there used to be. So it's just, you know, uh, it's all over the place now. You know, it's, it's South, Southwest, um, you know, everywhere they're doing movies except Los Angeles. (laughs) Well, I like that you make, you always make an impression in the movies that you're in, or at least that's how I see it. You know, like you were fantastic in Showgirls. I don't know if you made an impression or if Robert Loggia made more of an impression on you when it came to Lost Highway, but <laughs> yeah. But then that you're one of the first faces that we see in Starship Troopers, and I love that the story goes back to that moment, and so we we have a little bit more of you uh, the second time around. So it's really nice, right? Right. Yeah, it was, uh, and I didn't realize what was going on there when we did that. But uh, that was a long shoot. Starship was about a six, seven month process. Um, we shot originally in Casper, Wyoming, in this giant pit that had the the rock formations that looked like you know another worldly planet, and they had to desnake it. And actually, they it would rain every like maybe two or three hours. So they had these huge tarps set up. We'd all run under the tarps, and then they had these huge fans set up to blow the the dirt dry after the rain. It would just shower for like twenty minutes and then go away. It was weird. And then we shot at night only because they needed it dark. So they had big, huge lights set up around the perimeter of the whole thing. And, um, yeah, it was quite a lot of fun, but uh, a little scary, a little scary. Every once in a while, a snake would pop up and somebody would start freaking out. <laughs> so it was evidently a, a snake haven before they had to get in there and de-snake it. Can you imagine that job? Lord. I don't know how much you get paid to de-snake a, <laughs> a snake house. <laughs> yeah, that was a lot of fun. And, uh, you know, I mean, any of the uh, Verhoeven pictures that we did were just uh, tremendous fun. He's a lot of fun to work with and just a really cool guy. And, uh, you know, he, he 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 doesn't overshoot a lot. He does the amount of takes that is necessary to give him a few options, and then he moves on which I think is a good way to do it. You know, I would say not too much more than like 10 takes on anything. It was weird, though, how the order in which they shot that, because they would do like some little pickup shot that which took a little while to set up, and then they would go back to, you know, something completely different with some other actor. It was like a very, there was so much action and so many different things going on I couldn't keep up with how they were shooting. Usually you shoot an element like if you've got one actor, 
you know, and you've got a bunch of little things that he does, you shoot all of that together, but they weren't doing it that way. They would shoot one guy doing getting his leg dragged across the dirt, and then they'd shoot another guy being jacked up on a, you know, some sort of a bar, then they'd shoot me up on something, you know, in the jaws of a bug, and, you know, so it was like really bizarre how they scheduled the whole thing, but uh, I guess there was a method to their madness, you know. They almost knocked me into a uh, rock formation. When I was in the jaws of this mechanical bug, it got a little close. My head just brushed the rocks that I was next to, and so then they took me down, and nobody told me what was going on until at the rap party. Then the the guy working the controls said, yeah, man, we almost killed you, dude. <laughs> I was like, oh, really? Yeah, we like almost smashed your head into the rocks. It was like, oh, my God. So <laughs> you never know what might happen. Yeah, I would, uh, and then I also did a uh, a little bit part in Watchmen, which I played Andy Warhol, and that was a lot of fun. I had done Andy Warhol in a couple of little things, a play and a a few little films. I played Andy in some little short film uh, back in New York, and then I also did a Saturday a bit on Saturday Night Live where I did short films for Saturday Night Live back in '86, and one of them was Andy Warhol's 15 Second Workout. And so I got to go to Andy's studio. I called them, and just on a whim, I said, I'm doing this thing. Can I come meet him and uh, hang out and see the studio? And they said, yeah, come on over. So I did. And I, uh, at the very end, he, had, he was gone, and they gave me the full tour. And then as I was leaving, he came back in. And I got to say hi to him and, and watch him uh, go through these big notebooks of pictures for a while. And I realized that Andy's persona was different from who he really was. He, you know, very much like David Lynch, he's got this sort of like slow talking, kind of like the wonder of it all kind of personality. And uh, he wasn't like that. And I noticed on the set with David Lynch that David wasn't like that either. There's some sort of weird thing going on there where like when they're in front of the press, they're slow talking like good old boys, but you know, given the work situation, they be they talk fast and they're really together and they're super smart. You know, so I don't know what that is, but they were both very similar in that way. You've worked with some of the top tier directors. I mean, we've already talked about Verhoeven and Lynch, but even like Bob Rafelson and Milos Forman. I mean, just terrific, terrific guys. Yeah, yeah, and Milos was great, and, uh, you know, we got along great. He was, you know, very funny in the, in the interview, and I had a couple of inside stories that I had heard about him, and so I popped those on him, and he was like, where did you hear this? You know, he was like, what's going on? <laughs> but, you know, that's the thing. It's like, as a director myself, on what the little I've done, I like somebody who not only wants the job, but wants to have fun and be friendly and, uh, you know, not make it a, like, um, such an uptight professional experience, but more of a, uh, you know, a camaraderie. And if you feel like you can get along with a person, it makes it that much more attractive. And so being a film buff myself, I'm always questioning them and, and asking them about this film or that film that's some obscure thing that nobody ever asks them about and so they dig that they like that 
so you're doing stand-up, you're acting, but amidst that, you're also doing directing and filmmaking. How did you balance all of that stuff together? And Well, I mean, that was originally what I came out here to do. I was going to be a filmmaker. I, I did it in high school and, and a little bit in college, and I made a feature film my uh, senior year in high school called Joe Dynamite. I showed it for three nights and made a profit, and I thought, oh, my goodness, this is the deal. I can do this. You know, Of course, little did I know it didn't work that way in Hollywood, and you had to raise all this money. And and, you know, it was like one of the most difficult things in the world to do. But, you know, that was the plan. And so um, I had done these two films, feature length films in, in Texas and uh, one of them before I came out here. And so, you know, it's just such an amazing thing. It's such an amazing process. And it's so fascinating to me. And I love it so much. I just love the movies, as you do, it, you know, to make a film and to get it finished and get it in front of an audience and see their reaction, there's just nothing like it. I, I can't explain it. I mean, just being in somebody else's movie, yes, that's fun, and, you know, it's it's great, and I'm very grateful for as many as I've been able to do, but you're not the creator. You're just a part of the creation. To take it from script to film, the whole process of knowing that what you've created affected people and that you were somehow got a chance to maybe move somebody or, or make somebody laugh or in your own way, in your own way and, and through your own creative process, it's a validation of like, hey, I'm not crazy. I was right about this and this is valid, you know. And I think this is something that people will enjoy and uh, and have a good time with. I don't know. There's just, I mean, it's a very, and, and as you know, you know, my this current film, Dark Seduction, took me 30 years to finish. Had I not had the passion for wanting to share it with people, I would have given up so many times before, but I kept coming back to it because it is, it's a worthy project to, to get out there and to uh, let people enjoy so what is the story of Dark Seduction? Because I, I know there's the extra on the DVD, the 30 years of Dark Seduction, but just for the listeners at home, why 30 years and, and how did the well, how did the project start off uh, initially? Well, I was on the road as a stand-up working pretty, pretty much full-time. And then I started doing we, these Panasonic cameras came out, so we started doing little shorts with the um, uh, these sort of like half-inch Panasonic cameras that came out around 82. And so uh, I had a friend, David Daniel, in New York, who's my DP buddy um, from Dallas. And then I started doing a few of them in L.A. I met Steve Bouchard, who shot one of them there. And he had some contacts, some goods and service deals, and he wanted to do this feature. And I wanted to do a feature. I thought I was ready. I may or may not have been, but we were about 24, 25 when we you know, decided to do this film, Dark Seduction. And so uh, we just kind of jumped into it. We cast it quickly. We, um, you know, rounded up a crew and uh, of our friends and people that we knew, and we jumped right into it. He shot it, and I directed it, and we co-wrote it. And um, it's a detective meets two women vampires who are terrorizing Hollywood. It's a 1940s film noir feeling, along with an 80s kind of setting. It's got a very weird sort of mix, but we shot it in black and white negative, which is a real rich, dark black and white film stock. 
and 16 millimeter. And so that gives it a very authentic look. We had pretty good lighting people and pretty good camera people. And, uh, and we actually shot something that, you know, turned out to be pretty damn cool. Steve tried to finish it and do the music and do the editing and everything uh, in this office we had on Hollywood Boulevard for a couple of years. We tried to get it done there. We couldn't quite make the cut work. We didn't quite know how to do that. We weren't editors, really. We needed an editor, but we didn't have the money to hire one. And so we tried to do it ourselves. And so literally it was a learning curve of like, you know, how do I... You know, because I was, I was, you know, just cutting on these little uh, VHS editing uh, systems before, but I was usually working with an editor. And so for some reason, we, we just never, you know, figured out to hire an editor. So that editing process is what really slowed us down in the beginning and took up a lot of time. And, uh, and then so when I finally, uh, you know, talked Steve into letting me take the film and, and, and redo the editing and, um, I hired an editor, we got in there and we, we did the final cut and we got it in pretty good shape. And then when I, um, you know, went to do the sound, the sound company went out of business, the, you know, the, the, the negative cutter uh, had the negative for a while and then, you know, was doing it a little bit at a time and I was paying him a little installment payments and then he had a stroke and disappeared with the film and the work print for about 12 years. And so, uh, I finally tracked down the daughter um, and got the uh, got the film back, and then it took me, a, you know, a little while after that to do the transfer, and then get the rest of the negative cut, and get it all put together. And the, all the elements of sound were on a storage tape that couldn't be opened by anybody, so I had to find somebody to open this exabyte storage tape, which had all my sound work in there. So, yeah, I did a documentary called Thirty Years of Production, which talks about all of that and tells that whole story. Actually, it's on YouTube called 30 Years of Dark Seduction. It's on YouTube now, so it's a lot of fun, too. Yeah, it just, you know, it was one of those projects that every time I turned around to try to finish it, something would go wrong, and it would stop me, and then I'd have to backtrack, and I'd give up for a while and then come back to it. But I knew I had a movie. I knew it was a movie. I knew that we had something, because I had spent so much time with it in the editing that uh, I just felt like if I, you know, could get the sound and get the right music on there that we would have a pretty cool little film and we did it turned out at the premiere that everybody loved it they laughed at places i didn't even think they would and they laughed all the way through it and enjoyed the hell out of it and every screening i've had of it everybody's really enjoyed it so i'm proud i'm happy that i was able to to get it finished and get it out there it's remarkable that technology has changed so much throughout the years i mean you started this in 95 and you were able to ride those waves because so many people you know would would give up after a while it's just like no it's too hard for me to worry about you know all of these like codec changes or going from video editing to nonlinear to cutting the film kind of stuff mm-hmm. well it was 85 85 i'm sorry yeah 85 and which everything was analog and uh you know, all the sound was on the um, uh, Nagra tapes. When we changed over to digital in the early 90s uh, with the sound, that was kind of tricky because there was 30 frames per second per video, which is what we had the film on in three-quarter. But film runs at 24, so there was a discrepancy with the sync on that. 
that was a weird little thing. And then we couldn't get the film to sync up. When we finally got the sound transferred over to a hard drive uh, with the files, I had done all of the basically the sound effects, the, um, you know, all of the sound tracks were ready to go. And I even had another music track that I had done with a composer. And uh, I had to discard that because it was a little synthesizy and it was a little Casio sounding. It didn't quite sound modern and, and, and up to date for what we have now music wise. So I did redo the music with live instruments and live musicians, which I prefer. I much prefer live music than uh, synthesized stuff. We used some synthesized strings to, you know, to layer it, but most of it was live, which, uh, you know, I, I think makes a difference. I think there's a connection. There's more of a human connection with the music that way. Yeah. So yeah, the technology changed, you know, but actually the film, because of the technology changes, the editing program, the sound editing that you can do with Pro Tools, it gave gave us a much better movie at the end of the day. I went in and cut about 10 minutes out of it after I got the initial cut back. There were still a few things that were needed to be tightened up and a few transitional things. And, um, you know, you're just, when you're editing on a flatbed, you, you, if you make a mistake and do a cut, you have to go back. It takes so much time to go back and put it back in that you tend to go with a wider feel. You tend to go uh, more conservative with your editing. But on an editing program, you can do things and put it back in. And, you know, if it doesn't work, you just, you know, say, you know, undo. And then it's undone and it's back the way it was. Uh, It's no big deal. That's why things are a little cutty now, you know, instead of a lockdown shot, which can tell the story, you know, that goes on for like, you know, 30 seconds or, or 40 seconds. Everything has got to be cut every three or four seconds. They try to do a, you know, especially on television. I don't like that kind of filmmaking because I feel like it interrupts the flow of the scene. Because every time you cut, you subconsciously you're telling the audience that you're watching a movie. And so I kind of like long shots that just let the actors kind of meander within the frame and do what they need to do and say what they need to say so that we're not constantly reminded that we're, you know, in this movie experience. You know what I mean? It feels a little bit more, I don't know, organic almost if you're experiencing something. And then also you're experiencing things more in real time, or at least it feels that way. Mm -hmm. You know, if you can choreograph a two-shot, with an actor's conversation instead of cutting back and forth to their close-ups while they're talking, it feels much more real and at ease, you know, and uh, you feel like you're in that space. You can kind of get a sense of the room. You kind of get a sense of them. And then you try to like move them with the camera around the room a little bit. You know, it's, it's much more uh, naturalistic than to, uh, you know, constantly be cutting to this and cutting to that and, you know, jumping the line and all this kind of stuff that they do now on TV. It just drives me crazy. <laughs> but they cover so much stuff. I've got a friend that's a DP on Teen Wolf, and it's just like they cover everything from every conceivable angle. Well, what would you say your shooting ratio was, if you had to guess? On Dark Seduction, probably three or four to one. I don't think we did more than four or five takes on anything. You know, mostly around three to four. 
and uh, sometimes one or two. I did another movie in uh, 2012 called Midlife, and uh, that was about the ratio I shot with two, about four, four takes per, you know. And I think that gives you, sometimes you go five or six if it's an important element, but I think that, you know, or if you've got planes flying over, or if there's some technical difficulties, you can go, you know, more. But usually you get it probably pretty close to right on the first or second take, and then the middle takes are always problematic, and then towards the end you start to get it right again around six or seven. And uh, and then usually the final take is the one that you use, you know, because you finally get what you got, get what you want in all the elements. You're trying to get a lot of different little things right. And so, you know, when all those come together, it's usually the very fa- last take. Tell me about midlife. You must have um, – I'm curious about how your direction style has changed over the years, especially after being on so many sets. It was difficult. I mean, I got about, I would say – 75, 80% of the kind of look I wanted to get. It's very hard to work with a DP and if they're not familiar with a with another filmmaker's work, like I was going for a real Cassavetti style with midlife. It turned out to be a little slicker and a little bit more pushed. And then, of course, in the editing, I even polished it up even more than I wanted. Originally, I wanted it to be kind of dirty and sloppy and feel like a Cassavetes film from the 70s, you know. And I was hoping to maybe shoot it on film because that, that look it really enhances the whole experience. And so I spent a lot of time trying to make it look like film and trying to... And then I changed my mind. I didn't want the dirty look anymore because I could have left a lot of things in that would have given me that a little bit more. But then I, I got scared, and uh, and so I made it a little bit slicker than I originally intended. But uh, I'm proud of it. it. It worked very well for the, the audience that I've screened it at, and uh, the, the few festivals that I showed at, they tended to like it. And, um, you know, it's not a plot-driven movie. It's kind of a character piece where my character, I play this salesman who's having a midlife crisis and trying to figure out what he wants to do with the rest of his life. And he's got a daughter and a couple of ex-wives. And so it's him going through his process and, uh, and, and with some plot points and some story stuff that he's got to hang on to his job and make this big sale and, you know, all that kind of stuff. But basically it's a character just, you know, trying to figure out all these things in life and what he really wants and all that kind of thing. And so it's a drama comedy, you know, but, uh, all the acting in it, I did an experiment where I had loosely scripted stuff, but I would only tell the actors what I wanted them to, to get in the scene. And then I would let them, I didn't show them any script. And so I let them improvise what they wanted to, knowing the meaning of the scene. And then some stuff I I did give them lines to say on certain scenes, but basically we tried to improvise it. And then in the editing, I picked and choose what I wanted to use, you know, but, um, Servino's daughter, Amanda was really great in it. She plays the, uh, the ex-wife who's in a rehab sort of, you know, facility that's, having mental problems she turned out to be just wonderful and really powerful you know given her performance and Lilani Sorrell was in it Billy Worth so we had a lot of really good actors in it It really came out nice I'm imagining that you probably drew a lot on 
your ability to improv, your ability to handle situations, especially with your stand-up background. Mm -hmm. Salesmen, to me, at least the salesmen that I know are really good in real life, they are constantly putting on that act and really schmoozing. I know schmoozing has a bad connotation, but they can do it really well. So. Yeah, and there's a certain my mother and my uncle were were amazing salespeople, and I kind of drew upon my memories of them and how they were so powerful, and at the same time just so wonderful and nice and charming. And, and I guess I guess one of the points of the film was we kind of lost that. The eight, the one of the things my character says is that you know the days of the salesman are kind of over with now. You know we've kind of like left it up to technology and everything's moving towards the internet and uh, the personal salesman that there used to be in these different situations is just it's kind of a thing of the past. You know. You walk into a store now, and the guys don't even, they're just sitting there staring at their cell phone, messing around. They don't even acknowledge that you've walked in. When's the last time somebody actually sold you something that you weren't going to buy when you went anywhere to buy something? You know, it's like, it's kind of a lost art. I guess that was a little bit of what the movie was about. Can you tell me a little bit about Night Creep? Yeah, Night Creep we did uh, with Don Kalfa as the Night Creep, and uh, I play the cop in it, and it's a um, it's a little thriller horror movie. I didn't have a lot of blood in it until the very end. Uh, I was going for more of a psychological horror film. I made it in 03 and 04. Well, I guess... 03, and then we finished it in 04. It's pretty cool. It got a foreign release, and I'm going to re-release it on a Vimeo platform uh, probably towards the summer and uh, do a little um, little PR for that towards the summer. I've just got to finish up Dark Seduction first. Don Kalfa's great in it. He plays all these different characters. He's like this stroke victim landlord who lives across the street from um, the, from the stripper who moves into this apartment that he that he owns and rents out and at night he comes into her bedroom or at least we think he's coming into her bedroom at night and uh, doing things to her and so um, she starts to kind of wonder what's going on and but at the beginning of it all, she takes a drug called night creep. And so it kind of like a hallucinogenic, trippy kind of thing that she goes through. And then there's a rumor that once you take it, you, you know, you change and things start happening. And, you know, so her friend tries to talk her into not doing it, but she does it anyway with the evil stripper that, that the club she works with. So anyway, it's that kind of a thing. It came out pretty good. I mean, it was a very low budget and we did it for, you know, next to nothing, but it's got a certain, you know, with my humor, it's got a certain humor to it that I kind of like. It, it's kind of creepy and kind of scary. It's not as overtly scary as like a, uh, you know, a traditional horror movie. It's more in the David Lynchian kind of territory where it's kind of like the psychology of the mood and the the creepiness of what's going on is kind of what it's about. I don't want to nerd out completely, but I'm curious, how do you, going back to Dark Seduction, how do you market a film that is 30 years old? Do you just primarily play upon the whole idea of it being a lost work, or how do you approach that? 
you know, surprisingly enough, it holds up very well because it was a period piece to begin with. And it was, uh, you know, a hybrid of a 40s, 80s time period. It and it was a little bit of a parody, but I tried not to just make it a parody. I tried to make it more than a parody so it will hold up on its own because I wasn't parodying any specific movie. I just was the feel of a detective film in that period, you know, who's now for some reason in the 80s dealing with this case. And we don't know why. It's never explained. It's just because it was a low-budget movie and, you know, we didn't have enough money to make everything look like the 40s. Some things look like the 40s, other things look like the 80s. So, I mean, it just, you know, it's, there's no rhyme or reason for it. It's just the way it happened, you know. It's just like, well, we'll just like, you know, do it anyway. You know, with the poster and with the promotional stuff that I have, I think people get it. Millennials get that it's a, you know, film noir. You know, it's like those movies on TCM that they've seen with Bogey and whatnot. And that's kind of the selling marketing aspect of it is that it's a film noir. And it's, uh, you know, just happens to be about two women vampires terrorizing Hollywood. They kind of dug it. You know, the youth have kind of gotten behind it and, uh, you know. From what I understand, they they really enjoy it. I have to say, your poster art is amazing. Oh, thank you. Yeah, we spent a lot of time on that. Jason uh, Cortez did a great job on that. I was so lucky to find him, and yeah, he did a really really fine job on the poster. And it was such a surprise to see Julie Brown show up as well. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. I've known Julie since the very beginning. I uh, actually dated her for almost two years, and uh, we were both really young and the beginning of our comedy careers and uh she used to be uh, a comedian with a partner uh, brown and coffee charlie coffee was her partner and they they did a lot of stuff in san francisco and then they moved down to la and that's where i met her at the improv so yeah and this was a little this is quite a while after you know we had split up and uh, i brought her back in to do that part and she did me the favor so it was fun she was very funny in that so what's next for Dark Seduction? We're continuing to show it um, at, at, at uh, different festivals and different uh, events. It's online now on uh, most VOD uh, and pay-per-views. Midnight Releasing, there's a page at Midnight Releasing that has all of its, uh, you know, the icons of where to find it, and iTunes, Amazon, uh, you know, all those kind of places. And uh, we're just hoping that people will continue to, to download it and watch it and um and tell their friends about it. It is a cult movie. I mean, that's what we made. Uh, that's what we were going for in the very beginning. Um, I'm hoping eventually maybe to get it going as a midnight movie. If we can get a fan base, get people interested in coming out and dressing up like Serena and Vera and Dick Jones, then maybe we can do that. <laughs> and what's next for you? Uh, I'm putting together my next film, which is called With Joy. And it's kind of a Hitchcockian type of movie that uh, is kind of a bit of a thriller. Uh, and um, yeah, just working on that and putting the uh, all the elements together and uh, hopefully gear up for that this summer. Where's the best place for people to keep up with you and your projects? Well, I'm, I'm going to put my Greg Travis website back up soon, but right now I've got the company website, which is gtfilmproductions with an S dot com, gtfilmproductions. And so that's uh, that's got all my movies and uh, some of my stuff on there. And then uh, I've also got a uh, Greg Travis Facebook and 
and a, a channel on YouTube and, um, you know, just all the traditional uh, social media things, LinkedIn and all that. Well, fantastic. Thank you so much for your time tonight. This has been great. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you, Mike. I appreciate it.
If you enjoy this show and want more people to know about it, head on over to iTunes, leave a comment, and rate it five stars. Make sure you like and share us on Facebook, and don't forget to follow us on Twitter. Just search for Christopher Media. Thank you in advance for supporting Christopher Media by clicking on the PayPal button and by clicking through to all the sponsors who support ChristopherMedia.net. Most importantly, we would like to take the time to extend an extra special thanks to you. Christopher Media could not exist without your support. Thank you for visiting ChristopherMedia.net, and thank you for listening. Christopher Media, let's make some noise.